Welcome to Mission Driven, a conversation about how startups leverage their social mission as competitive advantage. Mission Driven is hosted by Better Ventures, a seed stage venture fund in Oakland, California, backing entrepreneurs using science and technology to address the world's biggest challenges. You can find us on the web at better.bc and on Twitter at Better Ventures. I'm Rick Moss from Better Ventures, and this is going to be a really interesting discussion today. Our guest is an innovator and a true authority on public health and health access. As many of you know, our health system has some great strengths, but also has many, many failures. And one big area that needs help is caring for the elderly and enabling access to care in under-resourced communities. It's a rich topic, and we're going to go deep on that today. I'd like to welcome our guest, Eric Whitaker. He's founder and CEO of Zing Health. Insurance companies really have been about the business of insuring healthy people. Got right. <laughs> uh, they, like, they don't really want to insure. They want to bring the money people. in, but not yeah. pay it out. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. so there's this uh, belief that minority communities cost more, mm. or that minority communities don't want the same health care outcomes of the folks that insur- mm-hmm. Uh, insurance mm-hmm. traditionally go yep. after. I know that not to be the case. Right. <laughs> they want the same great health outcomes as others. That's all achievable. A lot of times, as, as I've talked about before, no one's asked them what they need to, right. to, to really maintain their health. And so that's part of our secret sauce is mm-hmm. being able to mm-hmm. really go after these populations that others run from. His past positions include Director of Public Health for the state of Illinois. And the list of accomplishments is almost too long. He's a medical doctor. He's run an urban health initiative for the University of Chicago. He's been an investor and advisor to startup communities. And he's been a professor of health policy at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and led something called Project Brotherhood that we're going to talk about a little bit later here. He holds a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Grinnell, a medical degree from University of Chicago, and a degree in public health from Harvard University. It's with great pleasure and curiosity that I sit with him here in our offices in Oakland today. Welcome, Eric. No, thanks a lot, Rick, for having me. This is my first in-person podcast conversation since COVID started, a year and a half, something like that. So we, we were connected by Acumen America. They're a good friend of ours. We have three different co-investments with them, including one which is Clinify based in, uh, in Chicago. Glad to have that connection. And uh, you want to say anything more about your connection with Acumen? Uh, and your- yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, they were Acumen and, and the team there, Amen and Stella were phenomenal uh, in stepping in when we really needed capital. It was, you know, we, 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 I think we were down the fumes and uh, they stepped in with wow. Kport Capital, this you know, here in Oakland, another social impact fund. Yeah. And we, we were just excited to have some mission-oriented investors in our cap table because, uh, you know, frankly, you know, we knocked on a lot of doors and not everyone gets what we were trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Acumen and, and Cape Worth have been uh, phenomenal supporters of us. Yeah. So you could almost argue now you're, you're maybe swimming in money. Uh, but yeah. it, back in the day, well, not, not it was really. Cape Worth and Acumen to the rescue. <laughs> well, you, you know, to give some context, yeah. uh, you know, we've raised $185 million yeah. to date. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of money. It sounds like swimming to me. But the folks that we compete with, there are probably five or six other companies that do what we do. They've all raised in excess of a billion dollars. Right. So, you know, I, I happen to be a African-American male and uh, we know how to do a lot with a little. <laughs> and so we're going to get the same results for our, our $185 million that they get for their one plus billion. Hallelujah. And it's not about the amount of money you raise. It's about getting results. And arguably it can be 
an advantage sometimes to be yes. lean and you know not trying to overheat with too much money. Yep. So let's talk about um, director of health for Illinois. That's mm-hmm. a big job. I mean, that's effectively like the head of of public health for the whole state. Yeah. Um, Only twelve point yeah. five million people, uh, Rick. So, <laughs> Only, so, yeah. <laughs> right. What was that like? Uh, no, you know, it, it was the most fun I've had in my life. Really? Yeah, really. I thought I was going to hear um, some the horror stories. Well, about well you, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of friends uh, and we have a lot of great ideas, but really trying to put ideas into practice. Uh-huh. So just imagine that if someone gave you the keys uh, to the building and you walk in and you have 2,000 people whose right. charge is to help you put in place your crazy ideas. And so, you know, as part of, uh, the three major missions that I had at the time I was there for four years, health disparities was one of those. Mm-hmm. So you know, we ended up doing a lot of great work with HIV and HIV prevention mm-hmm. and communities of color, you know, breast cancer, men's health. You know, so these are things that frankly wouldn't have been done had yeah. I not been in the driver's seat. Now, why, why are those crazy ideas? Because I think I and anyone listening would think those are important things that need to be done. Well, I mean, the challenge... You know, frankly, at the time I was coming into that job is, you know, our, our state had been and our public health department had been run by Republicans for mm-hmm. 35 years. Mm-hmm. And frankly, my department at that time, they were trained to stay out of trouble. Mm-hmm. And, Probably cut the budget as yeah, much as possible. And, and, and whereas, you know, I came in and, and I wanted us to have an activist department that mm-hmm. actually did things. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a different orientation for people that were there. Because it's like, you know, we're not here to just sit here, collect data and, uh, and report out the birth stats or death stats. We're here to make a difference in the lives of community. And in fact, that changed the model of the department to be improving public health one community at a time. And mm-hmm. you know, with the recognition that, you know, every community is different and that we had a, a great deal, many of tools like data. We had other things, but really on the ground in a community, we had to use our tools to help local people come up with solutions for their problem. And so, it, you, know, it, you know, every community, and you know, we had to have bespoke solutions to, to whatever ailed them in those uh, towns. We were able to do some really cool things like, you know, hold a gospel concert or a rap concert where the price of admission was an HIV uh, test. And, you know, so we had a, you know, a 6,000-person gospel concert. Wow. Because in you know, the African-American community at that time, one out of every two cases of HIV were, or new cases were in the black community. So, yeah. but the money wasn't actually going to focus on that community. Huh. Interesting. And talk about Project Brotherhood. So you had a, in the state of Illinois, you had 2,000 people and a half billion dollar budget. And that was preceded by a sort of effort focused on black men's health. Well, I, I came to work at Cook County Hospital back in like 96. And Unlike a lot of people who worked at the actual public hospital, I chose to work in a little rinky-dink clinic on the south side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And from that perch, I, I saw patients, you know, mainly uh, HIV positive, you know, younger folks and elderly uh, seniors. I did research there and, and developed this project, Project Brotherhood. And really, it just arose from the recognition that in that community, Woodlawn, the life expectancy for men, it was 14 years less <laughs> being in that community yeah. versus white men in the rest of the city. And even though I'm from there, you know, I ended up doing focus groups with local folks because I didn't presume I had all the answers. I said, let's go out and ask the people who live in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of a community health center is that it's in the community. 
the negative thing about a community health center is that it's in the community. Mm-hmm. So we had to create a reason for men to come to that center that had nothing to do with healthcare. Okay. So kind of so like the concert. That's idea. it. And we, what was it? We created a barbershop. And uh, we also had a, basically a circle where men could talk about their problems because uh-huh. you know, we, did a, we did this focus group and at the end of it, we were paying people like $25, $50 to give their opinions. And the guy said, when are we getting back together again? And so we set up a barbershop and we had a discussion group for men with topics that were generated by the men. And uh, the physicians who were all black males participated in the group as Mm -hmm. black men, not Mm -hmm. as doctors. Mm -hmm. And so they got to know the doctors, which Mm -hmm. meant that it was easy to transition them to the back of the clinic where we're seeing patients. But we did rites of passage programs. We did Mm -hmm. a parenting class. In fact, I did the parenting class before I ever had kids with the men who who had our programs. Mm. And, you know, unfortunately, that model was backed by a public hospital, Cook County Hospital. And I had people come from all over the country who wanted to replicate that model, but there was no funding source because all of these men were uninsured. Today, with the Affordable Care Act, these men would be covered under Medicaid, and you could replicate that model around the country. Mm -hmm. But at the time... You really couldn't unless you had a public hospital. Right. But that led to me, you know, because of the awareness of this project and the impact it had, it led to me becoming the state health commissioner. Right. At, at the ripe old age of? And I was 37 years 37. old. 37. Wow. Yeah. Huge job. Yeah. It, it was, it was exciting, man. like I said. It was like, <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was so much fun. All right. And we like to drill in a bit on like what motivates people and how they was driving them on this mission. Right. Mm-hmm. So talk a bit about where you grew up. And to what extent that informed your perspective or, or matters in what you're doing? Yeah, you know, I'm a child of the South Side of Chicago. And I, until three months ago, I lived on the South Side for all of the time that I've been alive, except uh, when I've gone away, uh, like here to San Francisco to, to train for medicine. You know, the, the South Side is a, you know, it's a, a, a magical place. It's a tough place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Violence is an everyday occurrence. The food deserts are plenty. I was fortunate to, even though I didn't know I was poor, um, you know, had a a solid uh, group of folks, uh, despite the fact, you know, my mom being a single parent, there was a group of men in the community that that took care of me and my brothers. Mm -hmm. And so really uh, learned a lot. And in this program that I got into when I was a junior in high school, I ended up getting exposed to medicine. Mm -hmm. So this program was designed to find talented minority students who were good in science mm-hmm. and expose them to the health professions. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly it, worked. <laughs> it, it, it did. And in fact, almost every African-American physician I know in the city of Chicago, we all came through that, no that common pathway. Wow. They've impacted so many lives. Yeah. And in fact, you know, the, I've written about my experience you know, in that program in every essay that I've written from medical school, law school, business school. About I've gotten in all these schools, but right. I haven't gone to them. But in that program, we went to what was then the largest housing development in the world, the Robert Taylor Homes on the south side of Chicago. And there was a small maternal clinic and there were women lined up outside of the clinic waiting to be seen who were pregnant. And there was this thought that, you know, Poor folks, black folks don't want healthcare. And here I saw with my own eyes that right. there were folks lined up and couldn't get access to this clinic. Right. And so really that program taught us what was called social medicine, which you know now is called social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. But we were doing social determinants of health before social determinants of health was yeah. a thing. So that's that's really 
been a part of my approach to everything that, you know, the doctor-patient relationship is great, but really impacting things at a community level is more impactful. And I, so I always knew that I would be more than a, a doctor for one person at a time. So you mentioned something about the neighborhood not being the best neighborhood per mm-hmm. se, uh, crime-wise and whatnot. And really being an athlete yeah. kind of saved me. So yeah. though I was a A student, I couldn't let anybody know that. Yeah. <laughs> but basketball and being able to play basketball saved my life because uh, huh. you know, I was known for something different than being an egghead. Interesting. And so many people came out of that neighborhood at that time. You got mm-hmm. Jesse Jackson, the Obamas, you, all these other doctors that came out of the, the neighborhood. Is there something in the water there? Or? No, no, I just, I think the moment sometimes fashions the people. And I think that one of the things that was special about watching the ascendancy of Barack and Michelle is they know what what's going on at the ground level. Mm-hmm. You know, they had student loans until yeah. not too long before yeah. he ran for the Senate. And he was a quote-unquote community organizer. Yeah, so, you know, and I think our society is at a place where if you have a lot of wealth, you can drive by and not get engaged with a lot of social problems that mm-hmm. are going on in communities. Mm-hmm. And so having that that knowledge, that perspective to inform your decision-making is a critical thing. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect segue to Zing. So you have this background in public health, all these degrees, the directorship, and this childhood. How did that bring you to Zing? Well, and, and, I, what, and what is it? Well, well so Zing is a uh, health insurance company that sells what's called Medicare Advantage Insurance. Mm-hmm. It's a government insurance program aimed at seniors above age 65 and also some uh, disabled Individuals also qualify for it, but it's the federal government's health insurance for people above 65. Mm-hmm. Now, Zing, Zing is distinct in that we were founded by two African-American doctors who really wanted to focus on diverse populations, particularly black and brown populations. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at a lot of the statistics that exist for Medicare Advantage, there's a, a, a positive effect for being on this insurance program for white enrollees and not so much for black enrollees. And given the work that my co-founder and I did in Medicaid, you know, th- this is actually my third new start that I've been a part of, New really? Start yeah. Health Insurance Company yeah. since uh, 2012. It informs, you know, how we approach the work of the business. And it means that we have to sell differently. It means we, how we uh, engage the members has to be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we have to do things in a different way than the typical insurance company. Mm-hmm. And talk about your staff and its diversity. Well, you know, one of the things that we've been Team. really intentional about is, you know, again, this derives from our experience. So, for example, my wife and I and my, my co-founder started a Medicaid plan. When we went to meetings for the state, the diversity in the room came with our team. Mm-hmm. There was no other diversity in the room. And so we, we see as one of our roles is to create the next generation of uh, minority uh, managed care executives mm-hmm. and hopefully entrepreneurs. In Zing right now, 80% of our, our team is, uh, is black and brown. And that, you know, when we look at our membership, 80% of our membership is black or brown. Mm-hmm. There's no other health plan in the country that can say, say mm-hmm. anything like that. And it's your hope that your team builds wealth yeah. and comes back to the community. Well, again, intentionality that, you know, when, when we raised our seed round, we raised a $3 million seed round and mm-hmm. 33% of our seed round was black investors. Mm -hmm. And there's also an equity pool that is, uh, you know, there for our management team. And, you know, and we we will produce uh, an excess of 10 plus black multimillionaires uh, Mm. at whatever time we exit or go public or whatever uh, that is. So 
So we're excited about that because again, I'm, I live in my community and the Urban League, Chicago Urban League, the NAACP, philanthropy, political giving, that's all money. And if we can't support our institutions, our HBCUs, then that means that they don't do the great work that, mm-hmm. that they need to do. Mm-hmm. So talk about uh, social determinants. There's this uh, saying, well, you, you say it, about the percentage of health that really, of the actual health care that, that mm-hmm. determines your outcomes versus other things. Well, there, there was a study done some time ago that looked at all of the factors in, in health outcomes. And mm-hmm. it turns out that healthcare only comprised 20% of that. The other 80% had to do with behaviors like uh, smoking mm-hmm. or, you know, what your diet is. Physical environment makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, sometimes health can really be a factor of what your zip code is. Mm-hmm. On the South side, for example, and we had all sorts of illegal dumps <laughs> that people would come dump toxic materials mm-hmm. in our neighborhoods and roll out into the night. So social determinants of health include things like health literacy, education, mm-hmm. what type of job you have. Transportation is a being a key thing. You know, mm-hmm. when I was a, a practicing doc at this little rinky-dink clinic I told you about in Woodlawn, I had women who were 80 years old taking three buses to come to the clinic yeah. to see me. Yeah. And so if, if there's not transportation to get to uh, the grocery store or to mm-hmm. the doctor to pick up medicines, that inhibits healthcare. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of different factors are important in, in trying to, to uh, keep one healthy. So what you're saying is that Healthcare itself is only part of the equation, and that actually a huge part, in fact, even a bigger part of the outcomes, if you want to get good outcomes, is around access to healthy food and mm-hmm. a good living arrangement and transportation and essentially money in your pocket. All of that. Yeah. In fact, you mentioned I was the head of the Urban Health Initiative yeah. at the University of Chicago, which is a great academic institution. And I would tell people that we don't need to build another clinic on the south side, we need to figure out how to do economic development because uh, getting someone, actually one of my patients said to them, but prosperity is another. Yeah. Yeah. One of my patients said this at Project Brother. He said, Doc, the best thing you can do for my health is get me a job. And he's right. You look at the data, uh, people who are employed have a a better health outcome, even without insurance Mm -hmm. than folks who don't have a job. We uh, actually have a food card Uh that allows people to, to uh, buy food and they get it recharged every month. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, also, particularly in a time of COVID, social isolation is a big, big deal. And in neighborhoods that are violence-plagued, sometimes seniors don't come out of the house because of concerns of being a victim. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we actually, this year, are instituting a, a program called PAPA. And they basically, it, it almost acts like rent a relative. Mm-hmm. So these college students will go in the home. And take them to their appointment. They'll take them to the, their appointments, take them to the grocery store. Right. They'll play checkers with them. They'll uh, huh. cook for them. So, so loneliness is another one of those factors, Yeah, yeah, right? lo- yeah. loneliness, some of the data suggests, is even more deadly than heart attacks. So we, you know, we, wow. we, we've designed our benefits to really address uh, these things uh, like food and, and food insecurity as well as uh, mm-hmm. social isolation. Mm-hmm. So it seems like this affects low-income, under-resourced communities more than others. And to me, it sounds like almost like a social injustice that this is, but we haven't focused on this till now. How could that be? Like, why are we not clued in? Well, <laughs> and I, most health plans are not really even doing this. Well, I, you know, I have to give the federal government credit because in this area, social determinants of health with Medicare Advantage, they've opened up more opportunity in the last maybe four or five years to be able to offer these benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, previously, 
it wasn't on the menu to be even to be able to offer these benefits. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that as competition uh, ratchets up between different plans, the great effect for for our patients and members is that there'll be more and more plans that have to have these things to be competitive in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to have a transportation plan. You're going to have to have a food card. You're going to have to have, you know, so all of that, that's going to be a part of the mix and that's to the good of all of our people. And you all are pioneering the way to do it and showing that it can be done and get better outcomes. Yeah, and particularly for diverse populations. um, You know, we, we believe that, you know, we, we have the secret sauce to be able to do that better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the heart of the discussion here mm-hmm. about social mission as an advantage. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear, you know, there are lots of ways that it can be an advantage. And I think that's the point here is we want to talk about, you know, what is that advantage? How does it work in hiring and sales and marketing and fundraising and PR, you know, you name it. Can you think of a, a, a situation where, a specific situation where your social mission has really helped you in your business? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, just, you know, I want to just tell a story about our VP of sales and marketing, a woman named Sadia Selby. And, you know, people inside the company know that I call her the conscious of Zing. And, uh, you know, she, like many people, given the fact we didn't have any money, worked for free for us (laughs) while she had another job (laughs) for like three plus months. And one of the things she said that drew her to our company is that she had worked in healthcare for a lot of the big incumbents for, mm-hmm. for, for a couple of decades. And as she said, the first time she heard anybody in a meeting talking about the community and the member was us. And so she said, you know, when she heard it, she was like, this is different. So the other plans are talking about making money. Yeah. And, and they're, and they're cutting, talking about a whole different cutting services. <laughs> and she, uh, worked for us and she told me how she got dispirited selling mm-hmm. these plans previously because sometimes uh, you know plans will will develop benefits that are gotchas yeah and and they'll it'll be a shiny benefit like dental mm-hmm. but when you actually try to go use it you find out yeah. that it's not what you thought it was so she felt conflicted she worked with us so every benefit that we have is designed to be used. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Novel concept. Yeah, <laughs> we want people work. to use it yeah. so that they can get healthier. Mm-hmm. And so Sadia, again, is, is someone, and she remains, when we're designing benefits, you know, her question is, you know, tell me how we can make this easier to access. How can we make it better? Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, if it doesn't pass the Sadia test, we don't do it. I and mean, we, we have a, a company full of Sadias now. In fact, we just had our first in-person all-staff meeting uh, last week, since it was COVID, two, you mean? Yeah, yeah, two two days yeah. since COVID. I, you know, I hadn't met half of my direct reports mm. <laughs> in right. person. Yeah. yeah, and so it was a powerful, powerful couple of days. We went from nothing and to eighty people, and many of these folks, you know, probably fifty plus of them. We were at thirty people when we disbanded right. for COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, hadn't hadn't heard the story and how we got from where we were to where we are now. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I start crying. <laughs> I start getting really? teary oh. when I talk about it because, you know, I forget, you know, I take all the pain in my life and put it in little boxes and store it away so I can keep going. That's just been my way. And <laughs> some of that pain got unpacked last week because mm-hmm. I was like, I forgot that we only had $300 in the bank and a $100,000 payroll. <laughs> wow. And in fact, uh, the Sadias of our company, I would go to my office and call for dollars to get the 100000 and I came, I came out of my office once and, and there were a group of black women praying. And I was like, what's going on? They're and they said, for their, for they were checks. praying we can make payroll. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, you all know? Because I didn't tell them. 
And so I can see it on your face. There were folks who who would walk through walls yeah. for this company. And, right. and last week we just got added to the legion of people who understand the story. Right. And I can't tell you, like, there were so many people who walked up to me and said, Hey, I've worked at these big companies. This is why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And I love our mission and I'm not going anywhere. I, I left there last week saying we have a great deal of talent, That's really, awesome. that I don't deserve. <laughs> That people have left behind, you know, more lucrative jobs yep. to come, you know, join our, our mission yep. to really serve this population that's underserved and, and Medicare Advantage. Mm-hmm. And how does this desire to work for the company and interest in the mission, how do the Cedia these of the world then actually impact the services you provide and the, the outcomes for patients? Like, do you see that flowing through? Yeah. A yeah. well, part of the story was. You know, frankly, the every single person in the company, every single person contributes to the quality of the experience of our members. Mm-hmm. So if you're answering the phone, you matter <laughs> with that member because they may decide that, you know what, I got treated badly. I'm going to go to another plan. And I, basically, I, I made the argument that it's our obligation that we get our plan in front of the people that's right for this plan. Mm-hmm. And if we don't do that, that's a disservice. Mm-hmm. And so I'm telling you that it was a powerful couple of days. We ended up doing a volunteer activity together. Mm. There's a, a shelter called Deborah's Place. Mm-hmm. And so we packed bags with, with uh, toiletries and other things and mm. took it to there. In the DNA of the company, we have a corporate philosophy that we stole from Salesforce, the 111 model, which you know 1% of our equity from Zing has gone into a, a foundation mm-hmm. whose sole purpose is diversifying the health professions and STEM careers. 1% of the employee's time or about 20 hours a year can be done with volunteer activities. And in fact, we had two of our employees come up and do a presentation about what they do with their 20 hours. One of them helped build a community garden from scratch that they now take those vegetables and, and it goes out to the community. And the, the other has two or three dogs that are comfort dogs and they go into nursing homes, hospitals, mm. and the like. And they did a presentation in front of the whole company to talk about what they do. And the last 1% is that when we're profitable, which we're not, <laughs> you know, 1% of our profits will go mm-hmm. into supporting the social determinants of health in our markets, mm-hmm. uh, you know, supporting things like Habitat for Humanity or mm-hmm for kids. Uh, you know, there's programs that exist, the, the Chicago Greater Food Depository, that will donate money to, out of our profits to support those mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So that's in the DNA of our company. And, yeah. and we think, again, that we're, we're attracting the right type of people who are there for the mission. And again, who, who mm-hmm. work through the night mm-hmm. to get it done. Because mm-hmm. you know, being an entrepreneur is not easy. And ha- being a startup is not easy. Yeah. And so we need total commitment. Say more about culture because we've, we've mm-hmm. sort of stepped into that now. You've yeah. got, you're doing the one, one, one. Yep. You're setting this tone of, you know, we are going to do volunteer work. Yep. We're out to say, to help the community, not just provide good care. What else? Like, wh- how do you communicate what you're about in a way that makes people so dedicated? Well, well, you know, I'm, I'm a strong believer that, that if you have a strong culture that you're attract, the mm-hmm. right people and repel the others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you're not yeah. the right type of person yeah. who can't get down so with what you we're doing. So how do build that culture that sets yeah, that tone? You know, I, I think as our team would say, like in that, that uh, session, it comes from the top. We also have uh, in place uh, 
the OKR system, objectives and key results, mm-hmm. and have a technology platform that has all of the, the key you know, goals of the company that no matter who, who you are, you, it's transparent. You can see what we think is valuable and how it connects to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we try again to be very intentional about how we build a culture. And I have to say, you know, it's, it's, it's taken, it's sticking. It was really my dreams personified last week. Yeah. So why isn't every company run this way? I mean, you've got a 80% black and brown team. If you went through the top thousand companies in the U.S., and picked out ones that operate this way, there might be, what, a handful? <laughs> Why aren't they all run this way? And, and is this, you think this is a model for, like, what would you say to entrepreneurs out there who are trying to figure out if I should be a shrewd operator and just focus on the money, or if I should be, you know, really showing who I am and pursuing some of these, putting our mission front and center and trying to leverage it? Well, I, you know, I think, I think it comes back to the word I used earlier, intentionality. Mm-hmm. You have to be intentional about it. It doesn't happen by accident. Mm-hmm. Right now, I don't believe our company has enough gender balance in, in the mm-hmm. upper ranks of it. So I got brought a candidate for our board and it, it was like, this is a great candidate. I was like, oh yeah, that'd be a great candidate if he were a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and I have people like my chief administrative officer who, you know, as we sign people up, we're, we're doing one-off deals for executives. Mm-hmm. She'll say, step back and say, let's take a look at how we're distributing equity Let's take a look at you know the race and gender. So again, if we have people in place who are keeping track of this, because you you've heard the old saw, measure what matters. Yeah, that you can't it, manage what you can't measure. So, yeah, it, yeah, so so we we keep track of it, and we're very mm-hmm. intentional about building mm-hmm. our culture, and hopefully we'll get to the place where it's self perpetuating because that's just who we are. Right. And one of the things that I'm sure my team is tired of me saying. <laughs> is that I, I love startups because it's a blank sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. You know, you can design that ideal world and try to build it. Sometimes there, there are constraints. Right. I would love to have more Spanish-speaking insurance agents, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and we've just been having a challenge with recruiting people who are already trained. And mm-hmm. so I think the next step is we're going to have to grow our own. We're going to have to go find folks and you know, develop a school. But if we weren't tracking it, we wouldn't be able to know that we even had a problem. Right. Any other interesting stories? Fundraising. How did your mission work for you? With obviously, K Four Capital yeah. and Acumen, they're super focused on that, right? And what about more generally? So were you able to really bring it front and center, or were there times when you felt you needed to hide it, or it hurt I, you? I never hit it. I mean, I think a lot of venture capital runs on pattern recognition, yeah. and we don't fit anybody's pattern. Right? So, <laughs> I mean, there's some very, very big successful yeah. venture capital firms. That's We're like, you- why in the world would you focus on black and brown folks for healthcare? Mm-hmm. Like this very, very prominent <laughs> firm yeah. said this and, you know, really neglecting the fact that, you know, folks at the U.S. Census says that by 2045, the folks who are considered minorities now are going to be in a majority. Yeah. But in his world, it, it didn't make sense. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I, I've just been fortunate, like we talked about the K-Boards, the, the Acumens, they get <laughs> what we were trying to build and support it wholly. You know, and I was, you know, and I've been fortunate, even uh, there's our, our biggest investors, a private equity firm, and they are phenomenal. But the good thing for me is that they focus on us hitting numbers. Mm-hmm. And as long as I hit my numbers, they don't care about my little crazy ideas <laughs> about all this other stuff. So I think that uh, clearly having the right investors matter. But fundraising is hard in general. Uh, you know, if you're mission oriented, 
it can be really hard. But I do think that with the advent of the better ventures and, mm-hmm. and social impact funds, it should be easier for mm-hmm. folks to do that. So what would your advice be to founders? You know, should they think about the situation and decide whether or just go all in and sell I'm, their mission everywhere? Yeah, I'm, I'm an all in guy. So, I mean, <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, the question that you have to ask yourself, do you want the money? And not your mission? Like, right. why, why are you doing this if yeah. you're going to surrender your mission? Great question. You know, and, and, um, you know, and, and I would say our mission helps us. One of the rate limiting steps for our particular product is having providers, hospitals, health systems, docs in your network. And, you know, and I can tell you there's been instances where hospitals and health systems are not taking anyone's call, but they'll take our call because mm-hmm. we're so differentiated from everyone else who are just me too's that they can see the value that we bring with our mission. There's clearly some doors we would have not gotten into, but for our mission. The other other thing, you know, I just saw some stats. We commissioned some research for older folks who are African-American and Hispanic in Chicago, uh, Detroit, and Indiana. And 30% of those folks have no idea what Medicare, Medicare Advantage is versus 15% of other populations. Mm. And so what that means, and I think it's demonstrated by our internal agents, is that you need people who are expert at explaining, and I call it an educated sale. So it matters who our agents are because they know these people who they're talking to because they're like their grandmother. <laughs> you know, They know these folks. They've been from these communities. You know, Our sales force is largely black or brown. And they may take three hours to explain something but when we get that person, we got them. And so we have a tougher time selling, but we believe we need to, that's part of our mission is to educate. Another part I tell my salespeople, if our plan is not the right plan for them, educate them and, and make sure they get to somebody else. Mm-hmm. We don't want them on our plan unless they're right for us because then they'll complain right. and, it's, and it's not the right fit. And that's not what we want to Imagine do. that, telling yeah. them yeah. the truth about yeah. what's good for them as opposed to trying to just sell. So mission has been impactful for fundraising, Mm -hmm. good and bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's been impactful for our clinical operations. It's been impactful for recruitment of team. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been impactful in a number of different ways. I think, you know, I come to to work every day excited about what we're doing because I, you know, I know the impact we have and being in a place. And one of, you know, one of the things I love of being where I'm at now is that I've always had visions of big impact. But mm-hmm. to be able to scale impact, you have to be big and you have to be financially supported mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. The bigger we get, the bigger the impact we'll have. And so, so, so what's, that, what's that vision then to get really big and have a really big impact when you think about, you know, the end game for Zing and, and what it's accomplishing? What is that? How big is it? No, it's humongous. So, so I mean, it, it, I don't know if I could describe it in words, but, you know, we're in three states uh-huh. uh, right now and, you know, we're about to close an acquisition in another couple of weeks, that'll take us to 36 states in the District of Columbia. That business is a little bit different in that it's an underserved population that's largely rural mm-hmm. called Lasso Healthcare. And we see that as a complement to our sort of urban diverse focus. Mm-hmm. One of the lessons I learned when I was a state health commissioner, we have 102 counties in the state of Illinois. And I visited 84 of the 102 in four years is that the, the, the health conditions of rural areas can be just as bad as what I know from the inner city. Mm-hmm. And so we're excited to have the ability to, to really touch a lot of folks in the rural community through this, this acquisition that's yeah. coming. Yeah. 
So if you wind the clock forward, you want to be in all 50 states? All 50 states. Serving so, millions yeah, of members? Millions. And, you know, and getting so, what kind of outcomes by uh, way yeah, of groceries well, and, uh, and transportation? Want, want, want to have you know, great health outcomes. And again, want, I talked about earlier about the readmission rates for black folks on, mm. on uh, Medicare Advantage is actually worse on Medicare Advantage today than white populations, which actually get improved. So if someone goes to the hospital, you don't want them to get discharged and then go back. Currently right now, according to the national data, black folks go back to the hospital more quickly. Mm-hmm. And that may be a function of lack of supports. And when they go home, they may not be able to get the medicines mm-hmm. that they need when they go home. They or maybe not, they weren't treated well in the first place. <laughs> that might, might, that might be, you know, I don't know if we can fix that yeah. though. You know, the bigger we get and we have density, we'll have people in the hospital that'll help with discharge planning and making sure there's appropriate handoffs of care mm-hmm. from one system to the next because a lot of stuff falls through the cracks in those transitions of care. I think you'll hear Humana, Aetna, Zing, <laughs> and United Health Group. So we'll, we'll be among the, the large incumbents. Right. Uh, they all started small at some point. So when you achieve your mission especially under-resourced communities, black and brown communities will have much better outcomes Mm -hmm. because you're not only serving them with medical care, but addressing all these other things that have sort of 80% of the impact on the rest of their lives. That's right. I mean, you you know, being able to meet people where they are. And one crazy example is, you know, sometimes folks show up in the emergency room over and over again Mm -hmm. But no one asked the question, why does that happen? Mm-hmm. What we found out in our last company, which again was a majority, it was a, a black owned company mm-hmm. for Medicaid, is that that person didn't have air conditioning in their home mm-hmm. and they were using the emergency room as, <laughs> as a cooling center. Wow. You spend $400 wow. on a, an air conditioner right. and you save $40,000, $50,000 yeah. on ER visits. Mm-hmm. But there has to be somebody asked the question, why? Yeah. Why is this person showing up right. all this time? And, you know, the thing that's great about our team, there may be things that are not in our menu of benefits and they'll come and talk to us. And it's like, that makes total sense. Why aren't we paying for that? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, but you have to have a, a team that knows that at the end of the day, we want people to get better. And so they'll raise an issue because like I told them last week in our all staff, you all are at the front line. I'm sitting in an office somewhere. Yeah. So if you see things, tell us so we can address it. And next year's benefit design or, you know, we are a learning organization and we have to continue to be in touch with what's going on in the ground. All right. So as we turn toward wrapping up here, talk about something that you think you know to be true in the market that you think other people are not seeing and it's some, mm-hmm. something you'll be able to parlay into success. Well, well, I mean, I don't know if I call it a dirty secret about uh, health insurance. Insurance companies really have been about the business of insuring healthy people. <laughs> right. Uh, they, like, they don't really want to insure. They want to bring the money people. in, but not yeah. pay it out. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. so there's this uh, belief that minority communities cost more, mm. or that minority communities don't want the same health care outcomes of the folks that insur- mm-hmm. uh, insurance mm-hmm. traditionally go out. Yep. I know that not to be the case. Right. <laughs> they want the same great health outcomes as others. That's all achievable. A lot of times, as, as I've talked about before, no one's asked them what they need to, right. to, to really maintain their health. And so that's part of our secret sauce is mm-hmm. being able to mm-hmm. really go after these populations that others run from. So you'll be able to essentially clean up by serving people better mm-hmm. and addressing things that other companies are not going after 
and it, ultimately you'll be able to you know really build a big business a successful business because other people are overlooking that and somehow think that it's not profitable that's right we think that that's what we know is different and and how we're going to succeed so we always ask the same question at the end your personal mission if i were to to say eric Whitaker is on a mission to Mm-hmm. What? How would you finish yeah, yeah, that? I, I would say my mission is to change the life trajectory of Black people through improving health and wealth. And I want all populations, let me be clear, but you know, certainly uh, being a Black uh, male, you know, I, I really want to move the, the dime on my, my own community. That's great. Okay, Eric Whitaker, on a mission to change the life trajectory of Black people through improving health and wealth. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. This, this has been a whole this bunch of This is great. Fun. We're going to have to do this again in part two. Well, I got a lot of work to do before I get invited <laughs> back. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Mission Driven. To find out more about Better Ventures, visit us at better.vc or on Twitter at Better Ventures.